Hey everybody out there in podcast land, this is Chris, the Public Safety Guru, bringing you another lecture in the Season 2 NREMT EMT Lecture Prep Series. Today, we're going to be talking about the Trauma Overview Lecture. Now, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, at the EMT Tutor, or head on over to our webpage, thepublicsafetyguru.com, for up-to-date information about everything NREMT and EMT. We also have exclusive content for those that become podcast members or join our Patreon channel, which could be found by searching for The EMT Tutor. There you'll find exclusive members-only podcasts, study guides, and tests. Alright, on to your learning. This podcast is going to focus on trauma overview. And with this, you're going to have other lectures that are going to get very specific about the various injuries as it relates to trauma. However, in this trauma overview lecture, what you need to understand is that there are basic concepts of energy that affect the human body. And because of that, there's going to be a general injury patterns associated with different types of impacts, falls, and penetrating trauma. At this stage of your learning, you should be able to demonstrate critical thinking and make certain predictions of injuries that your patients may present with based upon your scene size up and other information gathering. And at the conclusion of this podcast, the EMT student should be able to understand some common injury patterns to major body systems. Okay, we're now going to jump into the knowledge domains as we normally do. And if you're new to this lecture series, knowledge domains is the information that you should know after this podcast as well as your reading and other classroom lectures. All right, let's hit those knowledge domains now. The EMT should be able to define mechanism of injury, otherwise known as MOI, blunt trauma, and penetrating trauma. Additionally, the EMT student should be able to explain the relationship of the MOI to potential energy, kinetic energy, and work. The EMT student should be able to provide examples of an MOI that would cause blunt trauma or penetrating trauma. The EMT should be able to describe the five types of motor vehicle crashes and the associated injury patterns of those crashes. You should be able to discuss the three specific factors to consider during assessment of a patient who has been injured in a fall, plus additional considerations for pediatric and geriatric patients. You should be able to discuss the effects of high, medium, and low velocity penetrating trauma on the body and how an understanding of each type helps EMTs form an index of suspicion about unseen life-threatening injuries. We will discuss blast injuries in this podcast and discuss the injuries that we can anticipate the patient will exhibit based upon where the patient is at when the blast occurs. You should also be able to describe the multi-system trauma and the special considerations that are required for these patients who fit this category. The EMT should be able to explain the major components of the trauma patient assessment including considerations related to whether the method of injury was significant or non-significant. The EMT should be able to discuss the special assessment considerations related to a trauma patient who has injuries in each of the following areas, the head, neck, 
throat, chest, and abdomen. The EMT should be able to explain a general overview of multi-system trauma patient management and explain trauma patient management in relation to scene time and transport selection. We'll discuss some of the associations of error medical services and the criteria for the appropriate use of error services. And last, we'll end this lecture by talking about the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma Classification and the utilization of trauma centers. Okay, I know that was a lot of stuff, but we're gonna really simplify it so that you can wrap your head around all of this information. And trust me, when you add the other specific trauma lectures, it will all come together. All right, let's hit trauma overview now and get this out of the way. For people younger than age 44, traumatic injuries are the leading cause of death in the United States. Traumatic emergencies occur as a result of physical forces applied to the body, whereas medical emergencies occur from an illness or condition not caused by an outside force. Traumatic injuries may be caused by underlying medical conditions or medical illnesses may result from recent or remote traumatic injuries. Evaluation of the MOI for the trauma patient will provide you with an index of suspicion for different types of serious and or life-threatening underlying injuries. An index of suspicion is your awareness and concern for potentially serious underlying and unseen injuries. Once again, index of suspicion is your awareness and concern for potentially serious underlying and unseen injuries. Okay, we're now gonna talk about energy and trauma. Traumatic injury occurs when the body's tissues are exposed to energy levels beyond their tolerance. Mechanism of injury is the way traumatic injuries occur. This describes the forces or energy transmission acting on the body that causes the injury. There are three concepts to energy, and they are potential energy, kinetic energy, and energy of work. Energy can be neither created nor destroyed, but can only be converted or transformed. Work is defined as force acting over a distance. Forces that bend, pull, or compress tissue beyond their inherent limits result in the work that causes injury. Now, kinetic energy is the energy of a moving object. Kinetic energy reflects the relationship between the mass, i.e. weight, of the object and the velocity, i.e. speed, at which it is traveling. There's a formula that you need to be aware of for National Registry. That formula is kinetic energy equals half mass times velocity squared. One more time. Kinetic energy, Ke, equals half mass times velocity squared. Now, according to the equation for kinetic energy, the energy that is available to cause injury doubles when an object's weight doubles, but quadruples when its speed doubles. I know that's a lot, but just think about this one more time. According to this equation for kinetic energy, the energy that is available to cause injury doubles when the object's weight doubles, but quadruples when its speed doubles. 
So how do we like break that down? Well, basically, if the energy will double if the object's weight doubles. However, the energy would quadruple when the speed only doubles. And so that is the difference there. Now, potential energy is the product of mass, once again, i.e. weight, force of gravity, and height. This is mostly associated with the energy of falling objects. So what does this all mean for the EMT? Well, basically it's this. It's to help you understand what type of injuries your patient may present with depending on the type of energy, or I should just say accident that happens. So prime example, if someone gets hit by a car, obviously the weight, i.e. mass of the car will play a factor. However, that weight may become very substantial when the speed increases. So getting hit by a car at 25 miles an hour while may cause injury, if we double that speed at 50 miles an hour, we now know that the energy has quadrupled, if I said that right, most likely causing significant injuries to your patient. So that's how we wrap all of this in. Now, will you ever use that kinetic energy formula? I don't know, but you do need to know it for your program and national registry. Okay, now let's move on and talk about the mechanism of injury profiles. Okay, before we move on to mechanism of injury profiles, I just want to say the word that I was trying to say earlier was quadruple. I can't believe I messed that one up. All right, let's now talk about the different types of MOIs and what types of injuries they may produce. Now we have non-significant MOIs and significant MOIs. Now, non-significant MOIs will cause an injury to an isolated body part, or a non-significant MOI could be a fall without the loss of consciousness. Now, significant MOIs will cause significant injuries, and these could be an injury to more than one body system, and we refer to this as a multi-system trauma. Injuries from falls from very high places, a motor vehicle or motorcycle crash, a car versus pedestrian or a car versus bicycle, gunshot wounds, and stabbings. Speaking of stabbings, let's now talk about blunt and penetrating trauma. Traumatic injuries can be divided into two separate categories, blunt trauma and penetrating trauma. Blunt trauma is the result of force to the body that causes injury without penetrating the soft tissue or internal organs and cavities. Whereas penetrating trauma causes injury by objects that primarily pierce and penetrate the surface of the body and cause damage to soft tissues, internal organs, and body cavities. Either type may occur from a variety of MOIs. It is important to consider unseen as well as visible obvious injuries with either type of trauma. Now I want to go back and talk a little bit about blunt trauma. Blunt trauma results from an object making contact with the body. 
Motor vehicle crashes and falls are the most common MOIs. Be alert to skin discoloration and pain. These may be your only signs of blunt trauma. Maintain a high index of suspicion for hidden injuries. All right, now let's specifically talk about vehicle crashes. Motor vehicle crashes are classified as either frontal, aka head-on, rear-end, lateral, which is considered a T-bone, rollovers, and rotational. And this is when the car spins. The principal difference is the direction of the force of impact. So remember that motor vehicle accidents are classified by how the vehicle is hit. And that's based upon the direction of the force of impact. A crash typically consists of three collisions. The first one is the car against another car, tree, or object. And in this scenario, damage to the car does not directly affect patient care, but does provide information about the severity of the collision. By assessing the vehicle that has crashed, you can often determine the MOI. The second collision is the passenger against the interior of the car. Now, kinetic energy produced by the passenger's mass and velocity is converted into the work of stopping his or her body. Remember, you cannot destroy energy. It's only transformed. Common passenger injuries include lower extremity fractures, rib fractures, and head trauma. In the last collision, we have the passenger's internal organs against the solid structures of the body. So our organs are colliding with our own body. Internal injuries may not be as obvious as external injuries, but they are often the most life-threatening. The following could give you an idea or clue as to is your call a significant MOI? And these significant MOIs are suggested by A, death of an occupant in the vehicle, B, severe deformity of vehicle or intrusion into the vehicle, we call that passenger space intrusion, C, moderate intrusion from a lateral accident, D, severe damage from the rear, E, crashes in which rotation is involved, or last, injection from the vehicle. In other words, the driver or passenger was ejected from the vehicle. If you have any of these conditions, you should think significant MOI. Okay, we're now gonna talk about frontal crashes specifically. In a frontal crash, you should evaluate the supplemental restraint system. Determine whether the passenger was restrained by a full and properly applied three-point restraint system. Determine whether the airbag was deployed. Seatbelts and airbags are effective in preventing a second collision inside the motor vehicle. Seatbelts may decrease the severity of the third collision. Airbags decrease the severity of deceleration injuries and decrease the injuries to the chest, face, and head. Despite airbags, suspect injuries to the extremities resulting from the second collision and internal organs which result from the third collision. 
As a general rule, children shorter than four foot nine should ride in the rear seat. In a pickup truck or single seated vehicle, the airbag should be turned off for these vehicles. Remember that if an airbag did not inflate during an accident, it could deploy during extrication, causing injury to the rescuer. So just one thing to keep in mind, and there are plenty of videos on YouTube showing those type of accidents. One last thing to remember as well. Supplemental restraint systems can cause harm whether they are used properly or improperly. Hip dislocations may result if seat belts are worn too low. Internal injuries can occur when the seat belt is worn too high. And last, lumbar spine fractures are also possible, particularly in children and older patients. Passengers riding in vehicles equipped with airbags but not wearing seat belts are often thrown forward and come into contact with the airbag and or the doors at the time of deployment. Look for contact points between the patient and the vehicle as you perform a simple quick evaluation of the interior of the vehicle. All right, that's it for frontal crashes. Let's now talk a little bit about rear end collisions. Rear end impacts cause whiplash type injuries, particularly in the absence of an appropriate placed headrest. As the body is propelled forward, the head and neck are left behind. The cervical spine and surrounding area may be injured. Acceleration type injury to the brain is possible. Third collision of the brain within the skull. This injury we call coup contra coup. This is when the brain moves forward and strikes the frontal area of the skull and then rocks backward causing the contra and then rocking forward one more time. So the coup contra coup. All right, a little bit about lateral crashes. Lateral or side impacts are a very common cause of death associated with motor vehicle crashes. A vehicle struck from the side is usually struck above its center of gravity. It begins to rock away from the side of the impact. This results in the passenger sustaining a lateral whiplash injury. If there is substantial intrusion into the passenger compartment, suspect lateral chest and abdominal injuries on the side of the impact, possible fractures of the lower extremities, pelvis and ribs, and organ damage from the third collision. Approximately 25% of all severe injuries to the aorta that occur in motor vehicle crashes are a result of lateral collisions. Let's think about that. Approximately 25% of all severe injuries to the aorta that occur in motor vehicle crashes are a direct result of lateral collisions. All right, we're now gonna talk about rollover crashes. Large trucks and sport utility vehicles are prone to rollovers because of their high center of gravity. Injuries depend on whether the passenger was restrained. The most unpredictable types of injuries are caused by rollover crashes in which a passenger is unrestrained. The most common life-threatening event in a rollover is ejection or partial ejection of the passenger from the vehicle. Even when restrained, passengers can sustain several injuries, or I should say passengers can sustain severe injuries. 
All right, we're now going to hit the topic of rotational crashes. Rotational crashes, aka spins, are conceptually similar to rollovers. The rotation of the vehicle as it spins provides opportunities for the vehicle to strike objects such as utility poles. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we've been going for about 20 minutes, so this would be a great time to take that 20 minute break before we jump into car versus pedestrian and car versus bicycle accidents. All right, let's go ahead and take that break. All right, welcome back everybody. Let's now talk about car versus pedestrian accidents. Injuries are often graphic and apparent with these types of accidents. There can also be serious unseen injuries to underlying body systems. You must maintain a high index of suspicion for unseen injuries. You should determine the speed of the vehicle, whether the patient was thrown through the air and at what distance, surface the patient landed on, and whether the patient was struck and pulled underneath a vehicle. Evaluate the vehicle that struck the patient for structural damage. An ALS should be summoned for any patient who have or thought to have sustained a significant MOI. Okay, moving on. Car versus bicycle. Evaluate the MOI in much the same manner as car versus pedestrian crashes. Evaluate the damage to and position of the bicycle. And if the patient was wearing a helmet, inspect it for damage. A helmet having damage or no damage would help you to suspect certain types of injuries. Presume that the patient has sustained an injury to the spinal column or spinal cord until proven otherwise at the hospital. Spinal stabilization must be initiated and maintained during the entire rescue. All right, we're now going to talk about car versus motorcycles. Let's first talk about the protection some motorcycle riders may utilize. The first one will be the helmet. The helmet does not protect against severe cervical injury. That's one of the problems there. Now, some motorcycle riders will wear leather or abrasion resistant clothing. This will protect against road abrasions, but not against blunt trauma from secondary impact and many motorcycle riders should be utilizing boots because obviously they protect the ankles and the feet from road rash and when these areas will collide with other objects. Now, motorcycle accidents, these are collisions, these collisions usually occur against larger vehicles or stationary objects. So that's what we're looking at in regards to these type of accidents. When assessing the scene of a motorcycle crash, look for deformity of the motorcycle, the side of the most damage, any distances of skids on the road, deformity or stationary objects or other vehicles, and the extent and location of deformity in the helmet. Once again, the helmet can play a vital role in providing us clues to the types of injuries that our patient may have sustained. I don't know if you know this, but there are actually four types of motorcycle impacts. The first impact is the head-on crash. 
This is when the motorcycle strikes another object and stops its forward motion while the rider continues his or her forward motion until stopped by an outside force. Then we have an angular crash. This is when the motorcycle strikes an object or another vehicle at an angle so that the rider sustains direct crushing injuries to the lower extremity between, I should say to the lower extremities between the object and the motorcycle. The third crash is ejection. This is when the rider will travel at high speed until stopped by a stationary object, another vehicle, or road drag. The rider can sometimes sustain a severe abrasion injury where the abrasion is actually grinded down to the bone and this is as a direct result from basically dragging that part of their body across the asphalt. Now the last type of crash is the controlled crash and this is actually a technique that some motorcycle riders learn where they try to separate themselves from the body of the motorcycle prior to the striking of the motorcycle against the object. And you'll see this where your experienced riders have actually practiced this. Now, they still can sustain abrasion injuries and possible fractures. All right, we're now gonna move away from vehicle accidents and talk about the injuries associated with falls. The injury potential of a fall is related to the height from which the patient fell. The greater the height of the fall, the greater for potential for injury. A fall from more than 20 feet is considered significant. Internal injuries pose the greatest threat to life in those patients that suffer from a fall. Patients who fall and land on their feet may have less severe internal injuries because their legs may have absorbed much of the energy of the fall. Remember, this is all about that energy potential. However, there still may be very serious injuries to their lower extremities and pelvic as well as spinal areas. Take into account the height of the fall, the type of surface struck, and the part of the body that hit first, followed by the path of energy displacement. So if we go back to landing on your feet, that energy will travel up from the feet through the ankles, through the leg, through the thigh, to the pelvis region, and possibly eventually the spine and neck. That is that energy displacement as the energy travels up before it finally dissipates. So you need to think about that when you are conducting your assessment on patients who suffer from a fall. We're now going to be moving on to penetrating trauma. Penetrating trauma is the second leading cause of trauma death in the United States after blunt trauma. Low energy penetrating trauma may be caused by accidentally through impalement or intentionally by a knife, ice pick, or other type of stabbing weapon. Many times it is difficult to determine the entrance and exit wounds from projectiles in a pre-hospital setting. Determine the number of penetrating injuries and then combine that information with the important things you already know about the potential pathway of penetrating projectiles. With low energy penetrations, injuries are caused by the sharp edges of the object moving through the body and are therefore close to the object's path. 
knives may have been deliberately moved around internally, causing more damage than the external wound suggests. Try to determine the length of the penetrating object as well. This will all combine together to help you to conduct the proper assessment in knowing is your patient suffering from a superficial stab wound or is this stab wound deep enough that it possibly penetrated some internal organs. In medium and high velocity penetrating trauma, the path of the projectile, aka a bullet, may not be easy to predict. The bullet may flatten out, tumble, or even ricochet within the body before exiting. The path the projectile takes is its trajectory. Fragmentation will increase damage. Remember, fragmentation is when pieces of the bullet break off and splinter into other areas of the body. The bullet speed is another factor in the resulting injury pattern. So let me talk about gunshot wounds. There are many different types of bullets out there. Some bullets are hollow point, which are designed to flatten out once they enter the body while there is ball which maintains its integrity and these are the ones that will go through and through bullets also have different types of speed based upon the gunpowder that they have been packed with so there are range ammo which is a lower speed bullet as opposed to ammo that has been designed to do exactly what it's been designed to do to cause major injury and or kill so these are the different things that you have to have in back of your mind when you're assessing the gunshot wound victim. Not that we'll have all of that information, but these are just various different things to think about. And if you can determine what type of bullet did enter the body, such as a hollow point or a ball round, that will help you to determine what type of internal injuries your patient may present with. Now there's an other aspect to gunshot wounds and that is cavitation. Cavitation results from rapid changes in tissue and fluid pressure that occur with the passage of the projectile. Cavitation can result in serious injury to internal organs distant to the actual path of the bullet. Temporary cavitation injuries result from a stretching of the tissue that occurs when pressure changes. Permanent cavitation injury results closer to the bullet path and remains after the projectile has passed through the tissue. So let's break, at, break down cavitation. One of the best things you can do is actually go to YouTube and search for cavitation. There are plenty of videos out there where you'll see gun experts shooting into a gelatin type of uh, substance and it actually shows how cavitation works inside of the body. So think about that. As a bullet enters the body, because of that speed, the tissue begins to expand, causing injury. Well, right where it entered, that's where we're going to have that permanent cavitation because that's where the main damage was done as the bullet entered the body. As it continues to pass through tissue, you're going to have that temporary cavitation because the pressure is pushing away from all of that energy and some of that can result in that stretching that we're referring to and eventually it will subside but not totally as much of the tissue will still be damaged so this is what we talk about with cavitation i would challenge you to go ahead and take a look at a youtube video so you can actually get this in the back of your mind of what is actually happening in the body as a bullet enters 
The relationship between distance and the severity of injury varies depending on the type of weapon involved. Air resistance, often referred to as drag, slows the projectile, decreasing the depth of penetration and energy of the projectile and thus reducing damage to the tissues. The area that is damaged by medium and high velocity projectiles is typically many times larger than the diameter of the projectile itself. This is one reason that exit wounds are often many times larger than entrance wounds. The energy available for a bullet to cause damage is more a function of its speed than its mass. Any information regarding the type of weapon that was used should be relayed to medical control. So in other words, we want to know if the weapon was a handgun, a shotgun, a rifle, and what other information you can find as far as what was the distance that the victim suffered when being shot. Was it close range, medium range, was it afar? All of this information will be definitely helpful to the trauma surgeons. All right, we're now gonna move away from gunshots and talk about blast injuries. Although blast injuries are most commonly associated with military conflict, blast injuries are also seen in the civilian world and they can be seen in mines, shipyards, chemical plants, and unfortunately, the world we live in today, terrorist attacks. People who are injured in explosions may be injured by four different mechanisms. There are primary blast injuries, secondary blast injuries, tertiary blast injuries, and quaternary miscellaneous blast injuries. Now let's break each one of those down. Primary blast injuries. These are due entirely to the blast itself. Damage to the body is caused by the pressure wave generated by the explosion. Now, secondary blast injuries. Damage to the body results from being struck by flying debris. And then tertiary blast injuries. This is when the victim is hurled by the force of the explosion against a stationary object. Quaternary blast injuries, otherwise known as miscellaneous injuries, consist of burns from hot gases or fires started by the blast, respiratory injury from inhaling toxic gases, crush injuries from the collapse of buildings, suffocation, poisoning, or other medical emergencies, and last, contamination of wounds from environmental, chemical, or toxic substances. Most patients who survive an explosion will have some combination of the four types of injuries just mentioned. Now, the tissues at risk from blast injuries, well, those are the organs that contain air, such as the middle ear, lung, and gastrointestinal tract, and these are the most susceptible to pressure changes. Junctions between tissues of different densities and exposed areas such as the head and neck tissues are prone to injury as well. The ear is the most sensitive to blast injuries. The tympanic membrane involved to detect minor changes in pressure will rupture at pressures of five to seven pounds per square inch above atmospheric pressure. So most blasts will cause some type of injury to the tympanic membrane. Pulmonary blast injuries are defined as pulmonary trauma 
that results from short range exposure to the detonation of explosives. Primary blast injury is often characterized by a lack of external visible injuries. Pneumothorax is a common injury and may require emergency decompression in the field. Pulmonary edema may ensue rapidly. One of the most concerning pulmonary blast injuries is arterial air embolisms. The arterial air embolism occurs on alveolar disruption with subsequent air embolization into the pulmonary vasculature. This can produce disturbances in vision, changes in behavior, changes in state of consciousness, and a variety of other neurological signs and symptoms. Solid organs are relatively protected from shockwave injury, but may be injured by secondary missiles or a hurled body. Neurological injuries and head trauma are the most common causes of death from blast injuries. Subarachnoid or subdermal hematomas are often seen. Bradycardia and hypotension are common. Extremity injuries, including traumatic amputations, are also common as well. This would be a good time now to talk about multi-system trauma. Multi-system trauma involves more than one body system, thus the word multi. Common multi-system trauma could be head and spinal trauma, chest and abdominal trauma, chest and multiple extremity trauma, and if you suspect multi-system trauma, you should have ALS en route as well as notifying the emergency room of what your suspicions are. We're going to talk about the golden principles of pre-hospital trauma care. And we mean by golden principles is that these are the principles that are accepted throughout the United States in regards to trauma care, no matter where you live or work. Your main priority is to ensure your safety, safety of your crew, and safety of the patient. Determine the need for additional personnel or equipment and evaluate the MOI. Identify and manage life threats, then focus on patient care. Assess and manage the airway, ensure that basic shock therapy is completed, and control bleeding. If bleeding is not controllable, you should consider the use of a tourniquet. Protect the spine and proceed with spinal immobilization if indicated. Transport the patient immediately to the appropriate facility. In most patients with multi-system trauma, definitive care requires surgical intervention. On-scene time should be limited to 10 minutes or less. During transport, obtain a sample history and complete a secondary assessment. Consider ALS intercept and or air medical transportation. This is when we go back to that trauma golden rule, which you should have learned about by now in your actual class. We want to spend as least time as possible on scene because the patient who is going to survive most likely will survive based upon surgical intervention at a trauma center. I can tell you now in my travels, I actually had patients where I didn't even get to splint their broken limbs because I was dealing with their life-threatening emergencies. So just keep that in the back of your mind as well. 
Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we've been going now for 40 minutes total, but 20 minutes from our last break. So let's take this final break and then finish off this lecture. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. All right, let's now talk about the patient assessment as it relates to trauma. The patient assessment consists of scene size up, primary assessment, history taking, secondary assessment, and reassessment. When you're caring for a patient who has experienced a significant MOI and the patient is considered to be in serious or critical condition, you should rapidly perform a physical examination. With a patient who has experienced a non-significant MOI, focus on the chief complaint while assessing the patient as a whole. So remember, if you think that the MOI is significant, let's assess the patient rapidly to try to find what is going to kill them. As opposed to a non-significant MOI, then we can go ahead and worry about the patient's chief complaint, but once again, assess the body completely. Okay, when you have that patient who has injuries to the head, remember that disability and unseen injury to the brain may occur. Bleeding or swelling inside the skull is often life-threatening. Include frequent neurological examinations in your assessment. Some patients will not have obvious signs and symptoms until minutes or hours after the injury has occurred. Okay, let's now move on to the neck and throat. This is the area of serious or deadly injuries. The trachea may become torn or swell. Airway problems may result that could quickly become a serious life threat. Your assessment must include frequent physical examinations looking for DCAP BTLS in the neck region. DCAP BTLS stands for deformity, contusion, abrasion, puncture slash penetrating injury, burns, tenderness, laceration, and swelling. Also assess for jugular vein distension and tracheal deviation. Swelling may prevent blood flow to the brain and cause injury to the central nervous system. A penetrating injury may result in an air embolism. Use occlusive dressings to prevent this. A crushing injury to the upper part of the neck may cause the cartilage of the upper airway and larynx to fracture. Moving on to injuries to the chest. The chest contains the heart, lungs, and large blood vessels. Many life-threatening injuries may occur. Broken ribs may hinder breathing. Bruising may occur to the heart and cause an irregular heartbeat. Large vessels of the heart may be torn inside the chest, causing massive unseen bleeding. Air may collect between the lung tissue and the chest wall, known as a pneumothorax. A penetration or perforation of the integrity of the chest is called an open chest wound. If left untreated, shock and or death will result. It is imperative that you assess the chest region every five minutes. Assessment should include, once again, DCAP BTLS, as well as lung sounds, and you should be monitoring for adequate chest rise and fall. Let's now talk about injuries to the abdomen. The abdomen contains vital organs that require a very high amount of blood flow to perform the functions necessary for life. 
The organs of the abdomen and retroperitoneal can be classified into two categories, solid and hollow. Solid organs include the liver, spleen, pancreas, and kidneys. Hollow organs include the stomach, large and small intestines, and the urinary bladder. This would be a good time for that review and you should be memorizing what organs are solid and what organs are hollow. When injuries from trauma occur in this region of the body, serious and life-threatening problems may occur. Solid organs may tear, lacerate, or fracture, which can cause serious bleeding into the abdomen. Hollow organs may rupture and leak toxic digestive chemicals. The patient may eventually develop a life-threatening infection from this injury. The rupture of large blood vessels can cause serious unseen bleeding. Remember, reassess the abdomen region using DCAP BTLS. Alright, we're now going to end this lecture by talking about transport and destination management. Much of the last portion of this podcast will really be dependent on the area that you practice medicine in. But in a general sense, these are the rule of thumb when it comes to emergency management of trauma patients. You should always consider calling ALS and if necessary, helicopter assistance to avoid any types of delays in treatment and transport of trauma patients. In regards to your scene time, Survival of critically injured trauma patients is time dependent. Limit on-scene time to the minimum amount necessary to correct life-threatening injuries and packaging of the patient. On-scene time for critically injured patients should be less than 10 minutes. Believe me, you'll be able to do it. The following criteria will help you identify a critically injured patient. Dangerous MOIs a decreased level of consciousness, any threats to the airway, breathing, and circulation. Moving on to types of transports. Modes of transport ultimately come in one of two categories, ground or air. Ground EMS units are staffed by EMTs and paramedics. Air EMS units are critical care transport units and are staffed by critical care nurses paramedics, and sometimes physicians. The Association of Air Medical Services, otherwise known as AAMS, and Medivac Foundation International identify the following criteria for appropriate use of emergency air medical services for trauma patients. One, there is an extended period required to assess or extricate a remote or trapped patient. Two, the distance to the trauma center is more than 20 to 25 miles. Three, the patient needs ALS care and there is no ALS level ground ambulance service available within a reasonable time frame. Four, traffic conditions or hospital availability make it unlikely that the patient will get to a trauma center via ground ambulance within the ideal time frame. Five, there are multiple trauma patients who will overwhelm resources at the nearby trauma center. Six, EMS systems require bringing a patient to the nearest hospital rather than bypassing facilities to go directly to a trauma center. This may add delay to receiving definitive surgical care. And finally, 
there is a mass casualty incident. Okay, now let's talk about destination selection. It is important for you to be familiar with how the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma classifies trauma care. Trauma centers are classified into levels one through four, with level one having the most resources. Level one facilities generally serve large cities or heavily populated areas. They provide every aspect of trauma care. Most level one facilities are university-based teaching hospitals. Now level two facilities, these are located in less populated areas and they provide initial definitive care. Level three facilities will provide assessment, resuscitation, emergency care, and stabilization of the trauma patients. Dependent if necessary, level threes may transfer patients to level one or level two facilities. Now the level four facility, these are typically found in remote outlying areas where no high levels of care is available. They provide advanced trauma life support and they will transfer to a higher level trauma center when the patient is stabilized. Trauma centers are categorized as either adult trauma centers or pediatric trauma centers, but not necessarily both. Pediatric trauma centers are not nearly as common. Do not make the mistake of transporting a pediatric patient to an adult trauma center when a patient trauma center is available. Okay, I want to end the lecture with this. Remember this. Remain calm. Complete an organized assessment. Correct life-threatening injuries. And remember to do no harm. Never hesitate to contact ALS backup or medical control for help or guidelines. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, this ends this trauma lecture podcast. However, I want to remind you, don't forget to listen to season one. Well, this is season two, and I consider season two the podcast on steroids. Season one has a lot of great information. With that, remember, you can listen to these podcasts ad-free by subscribing and becoming a member either through this podcast or by joining our Patreon channel. Membership grants exclusive learning content such as members-exclusive podcasts, quizzes, tests, and study guides. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the EMT Tutor. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening and happy EMTing.